You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, episode 35, for February 8th, 2009. Warning. This episode contains mature themes, adult situations, and depictions of drug and alcohol use by minors. Listener discretion is advised. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to the Metamore City Podcast. I am, as always, Chris Lester, your host and the producer and chief writer for Metamore City. I am here on Saturday before this episode is supposed to drop once again down to the wire. You can tell that this little teaching career of mine is taking its toll on my spare time, but wouldn't trade it. Got a few announcements for you guys before I get to the chapter today. First off, podcaster Triple Threat on 090909. Dan Sawyer, Pitt Ballantyne, and I are going to be releasing our next podcasting projects all on the same day. I'm going to be releasing Season 2 of Metamore City. Dan Sawyer is going to be releasing Book 2 of Antithesis. And Philippa Ballantyne is going to be releasing Digital Magic. So mark that one on your calendars, folks. 090909, the podcaster triple threat. This is going to be an awesome project, and be sure to let everybody know about what's going on with these three great podcasts, because it's going to be fantastic. You guys are going to love it. And I apologize for that bird in the background. I don't have time to wait for him to be quiet, and I don't really have a way to shut him up other than by wringing his freaking neck. And since he isn't mine, I can't really do that. So please bear with me and just ignore the noise. Second of all, the next feedback show between Dan and Kitty and myself is going to be recorded on Thursday, February 12th. So be sure to get in your voicemails and emails by then if you want them included in the show. We've already got a lot of audio comments for the last several chapters of Metamore City, so it's looking to be a great episode. But I know that Dan could use some more feedback on the episode of Antithesis that he just dropped, so be sure to listen to that one and send in your comments. And if you have any comments about Metamore City that you'd like us to play or read on the show, then be sure to get those in as well. Lastly, I want to give a special shout-out to our voice talents for this episode. This chapter is going to feature some special appearances by Cunning Minx as Dr. Julian, reprising her role from the end of last episode. And it also features Mindy Smith from Firefly Talk. You may know Mindy as the lovely Irish voice that reads some of their emails on their feedback sections. And she kindly agreed to voice the part of a Seth Morin character when I needed one. So keep an eye out for Mindy at the end of this chapter and at the beginning of next chapter. She did a really great job with the role that I gave her, and I'm so glad that she agreed to take on the part for me. So thanks very much, Mindy. You rock. Okay, here it is. Chapter 25 of Making the Cut. This chapter begins the third and final act of the novel. There are seven more chapters to go, including this one, and then Making the Cut will be completed. And here to introduce chapter 25 is the dark goddess herself, your friend and mine, Philippa Ballantyne. Take it away, Pip. This is Philippa Ballantyne from Chasing the Bard, Erotica a la carte, and the upcoming audio book Weather Child, set completely in New Zealand. And of course you know me as Ava, the best half of the Ava-Evan duo. I do so love it when the uber nemesis gets all lippy, because then I can challenge him to a battle of wits, at which I fear he is unarmed. So here we are at the end of chapter 24. Our heroes' lives were in a state of transition. Miriam Bhaktava, an elder of the Psy Collective, has now been turned into a vampire by the Syndicate. The crime boss Markham Advalos intends to use Miriam to gather intelligence on the Collective and spread misinformation within their ranks. Compelled to obedience by the power of the Blood Bond, Miriam plays along for now, hoping to find a way to subvert the new Master's commands. 
Daniel and Danny Shirabe have resolved their conflict with each other by agreeing to go into psychic reconstructive therapy. The collective's telepathic doctors will lead Danny through a simulated childhood, blocking out her adult memories and exposing her to a series of virtual reality scenarios. Though Danny's adult mind will know that the memories are fictional, they hope that these experiences will give Danny a sense of herself as a person, distinct from Daniel. This, they hope, will improve Danny's mental stability and allow her to coexist better with Daniel over the long run. Meanwhile, Fiona has her own inner demons to confront. Large portions of her childhood memories are missing and she hasn't the faintest idea why. Worse yet, something in her hidden past has rent a terrible wound in her psyche, one that influences her actions in sometimes frightening ways. At the end of chapter 24, Fiona checked into the Psy Therapy Ward alongside Daniel, determined to find out the reason for the holes in her memory. In the midst of all this, young Abby Preston has nearly been forgotten. Miriam tried to find the telepathic prodigy and bring her home to the collective, but the new orders from her vampire masters have turned her attention elsewhere. Abby has been left in the hands of former Psy-op Victor Hincavos, a place that feels increasingly unsafe as Abby learns more about the man she once loved. Our story continues six months later. Monday, December 2nd, 1995, Christos Reckoning. Danger. The thought came to Abby in her dreams, a primal fear that whispered incessantly in the corners of her mind. Danger. 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 It was not a word as such, only instinct and emotion, like the thoughts of an animal that smells smoke but cannot yet see the fire. Not safe here. Not safe here. Get away. Get away now. Danger. Abby awoke in a start, her body covered in cold sweat. Again. She would have sat bolt upright in bed if her pregnant belly hadn't been weighing her down. She rolled over on her side, hanging her head over the edge of the bed. Her stomach heaved, but nothing came up. The wordless fear still clutched at her mind, but now that she was awake, she recognized the source. Placing a hand on her stomach, she summoned all the comfort and reassurance she could muster and sent them into the mind of Darla, her unborn daughter. It's okay, honey. It's going to be all right. Darla accepted the comfort and stopped her litany of terror, but she also sent back disagreement, a wordless equivalent to... I don't believe you. You're wrong. Why am I wrong? Then, more hesitantly, she added... What have you seen? An anxious jumble of half-formed thoughts assaulted her. None of them made any sense. Abby sighed and rubbed her temples. She had suspected it wouldn't work, but she had to keep trying. Abby had some ESP, but it was weak. Like many espers, her power was completely passive, unlike her strong telepathic abilities. Victor had even weaker ESP than Abby. He could sense air molecules well enough to use his telekinesis on them, but he had never had visions, as far as Abby could tell. Darla was a different story. Even at six months' gestation, she seemed to have the gift of the second sight, in addition to a strong aptitude for telepathy. She'd been carrying on these wordless conversations with Abby for nearly two months now. Unfortunately, her esper talents weren't much help because she didn't have the context for whatever it was that she was seeing. Her reasoning abilities weren't fully developed yet, and wouldn't be for years. She was seeing something, that much was obvious, but she hadn't yet developed the ability to examine what she saw and pick out the parts that were relevant. In time, she would learn how to pass on her visions directly to Abby, but that was a trick that required a fair amount of cognitive power in its own right. The end result was that Darla was easily frustrated and prone to emotional outbursts, like a stroke victim who was no longer able to put into words the things she needed to communicate. Abby soothed her as best she could. Never mind. Sleep now, Darla. Darla stubbornly rallied one last thought before drifting off. Get away soon. Not safe. As her daughter's mind fell quiet, Abby got up and padded over to the bathroom. 
She splashed some cold water on her face and looked at her bloodshot eyes in the mirror. I'm only 16. Why do I feel so old? Everything all right? Victor's reflection appeared in the mirror behind her. It was a mark of how frazzled she was that she hadn't even noticed the buzz of mental static that heralded his approach. No, she said flatly, taking the towel and drying her face. It happened again, Victor. That's the third time this week. He glowered. Damn these worthless doctors. You'd think they could give you something to help you sleep. Abby let out an exasperated sigh. I told you, it's not safe for the baby. And anyway, they aren't nightmares. Something's wrong with Darla. She's terrified and I don't know why. Victor put his hands on her shoulders and rubbed them. Are you sure she's not just having nightmares? Even mundane children can have bad dreams. Maybe our little genius just has an overactive imagination. Abby shook her head. No, I can tell the difference between dreams and... and visions. Darla knows something. She just doesn't know how to tell me. Victor sighed. (sighs) All right, I'll find you another doctor. Maybe he can figure out what's wrong with her. Abby turned around and looked up at him imploringly. She needs a collective doctor, Vic. These Mondays don't know anything about telepathic pregnancies. What do you think they're going to do? Get her a shrink? Victor's face shuddered, his body instantly going tense. He took his hands off her shoulders and turned away. We've already been over this. I'm not going to let the elders get their hands on my daughter. Abby grabbed for his mind as he left. As usual, she couldn't get a firm hold, and she stomped her foot in irritation. She's my daughter too, dammit. And if we don't get her some real help, she's going to be so traumatized by the time she's born that we'll be lucky if she isn't catatonic. What's that going to accomplish, except proving to the elders that they were right all along? Victor made no response. He just stood there with his back to her, halfway from the bathroom to the bedroom door. Maybe I'm finally getting through to him. Look, she said, deliberately softening both her tone and her body language. I know we wanted to try living on our own, but it it hasn't exactly worked out the way we planned. The hive wasn't perfect, but at least we didn't have to live in these filthy apartments where even the Mundies don't want to live. She took a few steps forward and put a gentle hand on his shoulder. I just want to make sure we're doing what's best for Darla. Maybe it's time to go home. No! Victor wheeled on her like a caged animal. Before she could react, a telekinetic grip had seized her and flung her back against the wall. She cried out at the impact, and the invisible force tightened around her neck, cutting off her air. He held her half a meter off the floor, which put her more or less at his own eye level. He got up in her face, his eyes flashing with a madman's fury. I'm sick of your whining! Spoil little brat! I rescued you, taught you, got you out from under the Elder's control. Is this how you repay me? He slapped her hard. You ungrateful whore. Do you know what they'd do with you if they had you? They'd take your daughter away from you the instant they could cut her out of you. Then they'd give you to some wrinkled old elder you've never met and let him fuck you till your belly swells with his child. They'd do it to you again and again and again. You'd be nothing but a broodmare for the next batch of slaves in service to the exalted collective. Is that what you want, you stupid bitch? Is it? Abby tried to answer, but she couldn't get a breath in or out past Victor's unseen grip. Desperately, she waved her hands at him and then gestured at her neck. Abruptly, Victor seemed to realize what he was doing. He blinked and shook his head, and when he looked at her again, the mad gleam in his eyes had faded. Now looking worried, he lowered her to the floor and released his grip on her neck. Abby slid down the wall, coughing and gasping for air. Oh, oh no! No, 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 I didn't... I I wasn't... Victor reached out toward her. She flinched away, wrapping her arms around her belly. Baby, no, I'm sorry, he said, crouching down on the floor next to her. I I didn't mean to hurt you. You just got me so angry I couldn't think straight. She sobbed (laughs) once, then choked back her frightened tears. She couldn't look at him. He reached out and ran his hand over her hair, and even that made her skin crawl. I'm sorry, baby. You you know I've got this temper. I, I hate it, but it's helped keep me alive. Keep us both alive. I I shouldn't have said those things, but when you talked about going back to the elders, about taking my... 
our child away from me. He shook his head. You shouldn't say things like that, Abby. You know what can happen when people make me angry. So this is my fault? Abby shuddered. She wanted to scream at him, wanted to run away and hide, wanted to be anywhere but in that room with him. She settled for keeping herself as still and as quiet as possible, desperate not to say or do anything that might set him off again. Victor sighed, then got to his feet. (sighs) Listen, we're not the only teeps ever to leave the collective. Let me see if I can find a telepathic doctor who can take care of this quietly. There's got to be at least one of them in the city who isn't one of the Elder's pawns. If I can't find one in, let's say, a week, then we can go to the dock you want to see. Who knows, maybe the problem will go away by then. Is that all right, baby? Abby nodded vigorously. Promise anything. Say whatever he wants, just as long as he goes away. Just as long as he doesn't hurt me again. All right, all right. Victor looked at his hands a moment, then wiped them on his pants. I'm going to meet with some of my contacts, see if they know an OBGYN who treats telepaths. I'll be back in a few hours, okay? Okay. She closed her eyes and waited for him to leave. After hesitating for another long moment, he did so. Ten minutes after he left, Abby gathered the strength to get up and move again. She immediately started packing. Abby had been naive, dangerously naive, but she wasn't stupid. She still couldn't read Victor's mind, but it didn't take telepathy to see that his rage controlled him. She'd seen glimpses of that rage before, but always directed at other people. Foolishly, she'd thought that his love for her made her immune. She knew better now. Oh yes, he'd said that he was sorry. Maybe he even believed it himself. But even if that were so, the part of Victor that was sorry wasn't the part in control. If he did this once, he'd do it again to her or, gods forbid, to Darla, and the next time he might not stop before it was too late. Then it wouldn't matter how sorry he was. She filled the small bag with essentials, not that she owned all that much that wasn't essential, and put on several layers of clothes. Then she grabbed the little black book that held Victor's contacts and started looking through the listings. Victor had pointed out one reality all too well. She couldn't go back to the hive alone. His warnings about the elders cutting her child out of her seemed entirely too plausible, and given Victor's own mental instability, they might not wait until the child was old enough to survive the procedure. She'd been in the creche long enough to know how much the Collective feared insanity in its members. A telepath as powerful as Darla had the potential to influence a lot of others. If they suspected that Victor's madness might be passed down, they might decide Abby's daughter was more risk than she was worth. Abby needed an ally, badly, and there was only one person in Victor's book who had the necessary connections and also seemed trustworthy. The work number in the book was out of date, but a call to the receptionist gave her the information she needed. Taking her purse on one arm and her bag on the other, she set out to find Daniel Sharabi. Are you sure you want to do this, Bex? Rebecca smiled tentatively at Danny. Sure. I mean, don't you? You helped plan all of this. I know, I know. I guess I'm just nervous. Trace is so... She spread her hands on either side of her face as she opened her mouth in a silent wow. I mean, what if he doesn't want to? Rebecca grinned. From what I hear, that's not likely. And anyway... Have you looked in the mirror lately? You're pretty hot stuff yourself these days. Danny blushed and fiddled with the collar of her blouse. Okay. Okay, let's do it. Summoning up all the courage they could muster, Danny and Rebecca left their dorm room and snuck down the hallway with their shoes in their hands, alert for the sound of approaching footsteps. They crept past the lift and the guard station in front of it, then entered the stairwell at the end of the hall. They snuck down to the next floor where the boys' dorms were located and made their way to Trace's room. At the door, Danny paused and took Becca's hand. Is he in there? Rebecca closed her eyes and nodded. I'll call him. Just a sec. Danny fidgeted while the seconds ticked by, very much aware that they were not supposed to be here. 
But it was Becca's 16th birthday, darn it, and this was how she wanted to celebrate. She wasn't about to abandon her best friend in the whole world, even if she was almost as scared as she was excited. The door opened a little and Trace looked down at them. He was wearing only his boxers, and his taut, muscular chest and abs looked like polished ebony in the dim light of the hall. He sported a knowing grin. Now, how can I help you two lovely ladies? He spoke audibly, in a low and sultry tone that suggested that he knew exactly how he could help them. It was risky, talking out loud, but it let him use that damned sexy voice of his. Danny felt her stomach give a little flip-flop just at the sound of it. Here goes everything. Danny and Becca struck a sultry pose, trying to mimic the women in the adult magazines. Danny put a finger to her lips, then reached out and lightly touched Trace's chest, initiating a telepathic link. Hey Trace, it's Becca's birthday today, and we're gonna have a little party to celebrate. She wrapped her arm suggestively around Rebecca. Bex got up on tiptoe and nibbled playfully on Danny's ear. You wanna join us? Several emotions flickered swiftly through Trace's mind. A surprise, Danny noted, was not among them. Somehow that total self-confidence made her want him even more. Well, that sounds like a lovely idea, Trace said, switching to telepathy. Where is this little party supposed to happen? Rebecca grinned. Danny found an empty office a few floors down. We've been getting it decorated for the occasion. Trace smirked. So that's the little problem Dell's been helping you with. He's been so nervous the last few days I thought his tail was going to get stuck between his legs. Yeah, Dell's been great. Danny said, sending her thoughts a little faster than usual. Look, are you coming? I don't want to get caught down here. Trace's eyes twinkled. Just let me put something on. He looked down at Rebecca's slinky dress and Danny's designer jeans and low-cut blouse. I think I'm a little underdressed for this party. He stepped back from Danny's finger, breaking the link, and shut the door. Oh, baby. You're going to be more undressed than that when we're done with you. Danny shushed her with a look. She wasn't sure why she was so on edge. Well, other than the fear of getting caught but her emotions seemed to be tangling themselves in ever more complicated knots. She and Rebecca had been fantasizing about Trace for months, but now that they were actually going to do something about it... Ready, Trace said, opening the door and slipping out into the hall. He was dressed in a scarlet red button-down shirt and khakis, and had a backpack slung over one shoulder. Lead the way, Danny. Danny did so, taking them down to the basement of the Westfall campus. They wove their way through stacks of boxes and crates, some of them covered by decades' worth of dust, until at last they came to a steel door propped open with a piece of plywood. Don't let the door latch, Danny warned them as she slipped through into the stairwell beyond. It'll lock automatically, and it took forever for Dell to get it open last time. Trace nodded assent and put the piece of wood carefully back into place as he joined the two girls on the landing. The stairs were narrow and steep, lit only by small blue electroluminescent panels along the walls. What do you think these stairs are here for? We already have escape exits, and they aren't hidden in the corner of the basement. If you tried to run down these stairs, you'd probably kill yourself. Danny shrugged. Probably some kind of maintenance shaft for electronics or plumbing or whatever. She pointed to the locked access panels that lined the walls. These towers are so big, they must have dozens of little hidden passages like this. Pretty brave of you to come exploring down here by yourself. What if you'd gotten hurt? Danny turned around and stuck her tongue out at him. I can take care of myself. Psychic healing, remember? (laughs) Trace chuckled and raised a hand, conceding the point. All right, so where's this little hideaway? Danny stopped at the next landing and pushed open another door, which had likewise been propped open. Right this way, she said, gesturing grandly at the room beyond. It was only a vacant office space. The faint smell of drywall dust still hung in the air, and the walls were unpainted. But the floor-to-ceiling windows offered a great view of the city beyond. Danny directed them to a cluster of sleeping bags, pillows, and beanbag chairs near the windows. A few feet away sat a small cooler and a portable stereo. Pretty nice. Trace said, flopping back into one of the bean bags. 
isn't it, though? Becca agreed. She sprawled out on the sleeping bags and tucked a pillow under her chest, which had the added benefit of displaying her cleavage for Trace's approval. Danny took a sidelong look at him and decided that he approved quite a lot. Danny went over to the stereo and started it playing, something soft and sultry that Rebecca had picked out. She opened the cooler and pulled out three of their hard-won bottles of beer. Here you go, Vex, she said, handing her a bottle. Your first taste of the world of grown-ups. Happy birthday. Trace took the second bottle and smirked as he twisted off the cap. Dale got this for you? Danny nodded as she opened her own bottle. Yeah, have you had it before? Trace's eyes twinkled as he took a sip. He looked down at Rebecca, his expression curious and expectant. Rebecca looked at him, then over at Danny. Well, here goes, she murmured, then raised the bottle to her lips and drank. Immediately, her face puckered and she nearly spat it out. (laughs) Danny giggled as Becca forced it down. Gods! Uh, People drink this? <laughs> yes, but not usually for their first beer. Rukelia Pale Ale is a little intense for beginners. Too much hops. Rebecca took another slight sip, as if to convince herself that it wasn't as bad as she first thought. She didn't look convinced. I don't think you could pay me to drink this. Danny took a sip of her beer and grimaced. I think I agree with you, she said, setting it down. Trace grinned and took a long swig from his bottle. More for me, then. Glad somebody's gonna get some use out of it, Danny said sourly. Blast it, I bet Dell did that on purpose. You'll have to talk with him about that. No, I... Danny froze. Her eyes widened and her jaw snapped shut. Danny? Becky asked, sounding puzzled. What is it? Danny shook her head, trying to clear it. She'd been about to say, No, I can't, because Del's dead. But why would she have thought that? Del was upstairs right now, probably asleep in his room. She'd seen him just a few hours ago. He wasn't dead. So why did that feel like a lie? Trace's strong, gentle hands touched her shoulders from behind. She leaned back into him without thinking about it. What's the matter, Danny? She took a deep breath and shook her head. Nothing. Sorry. Just spaced out for a minute there. She stepped away from Trace, out from under his hands. I'm gonna try a cab. Anyone else want a cab? She grabbed the little bag next to the cooler, pulling out a lighter and a pack of cannabis cigarettes. She pulled one out with cold, trembling fingers and held up the pack in front of her. See? This is supposed to be the good stuff. Supposed to mellow you out. Anybody? Bex? Oh gods, I'm babbling. Why am I babbling? Rebecca was on her feet now, too, the plan forgotten. She and Trace were slowly coming toward her now, sadness and concern in their eyes. Danny? What? I'm fine. Danny insisted, hating the way that her voice quavered as she spoke. I'm just a little nervous, that's all. Just need something to relax. She thrust the pack of cabs toward Becca. This was your idea, too. Sex, drugs, and booze, right? Good girl Becca's one little night to rebel. I'm just along for the ride. Don't look at me like that. This isn't you, Danny. How do you know? Danny demanded, her eyes filling with frantic tears. How do you know it isn't me? Maybe I want to get high and let you bang me till I can't see straight. Maybe I want to watch you do it to Rebecca to see the look in her face when you fill her up inside. How do you know that's not what I want? Trace caught her hands in his, gently trapping them and taking away the cigarettes. Because you know it. Rebecca put a hand on Danny's arm. It's okay, Dee. Really it is. You're just not ready. (laughs) But I want to be ready. I don't know what's wrong with me. Trace, when I saw you come out without your shirt, I thought I was going to cream my pants right there. But now I'm freaking out and I don't even know why. Hey, come here, girl. Trace opened his arms, offering a hug. Danny accepted, pressing herself up against the soft red fabric of his shirt. You don't have to explain anything. The right time is when you say it is, and it's okay to change your mind. (laughs) I don't suppose I could ask for a rain check? (laughs) Sure. I'll be here when you're ready. No, you won't. The thought struck Danny out of nowhere. 
Her eyes snapped open. Trace's chest was still red, but the shirt was gone, and it was blood that covered him now, bright red blood that was too red to be real. It crawled off his skin and onto her, covering her hands, marking her, staining her. Guilty! And now she could see the bullet hole where Trace's eye used to be, and there was Dell on the floor with his blood-soaked fur, and it was wrong. It was all wrong. No! Danny shrieked, her whole body going rigid. Ah! She stared around wildly, taking in the soft white room, the hospital bed, the lines of whirring equipment. She ripped the spelljack off her head and threw it to the floor, her hands shaking. Memories came flooding back as the psytherapist released the block that had regressed her to age 16. They'd been doing these sessions for months, slowly building up her simulated childhood, but this? This was definitely not in the brochure. The door opened and the psytherapist, Dr. Julian, came inside. Her eyes were wide and her expression troubled. Danny, are you all right? What the fuck was that? Do you remember where you are? Yes, I'm all here. What the fuck was that? Dr. Julian gestured helplessly. Some kind of leakage around the mind block. A, a piece of your current memories got into the simulation and contaminated it. No fucking shit. Please understand, this is extremely rare. The emotions attached to a memory have to be incredibly intense and personal for it to break through like that. There was nothing in your profile to suggest that you and Mr. Umbara had ever been intimate in that way. Danny scoffed. (laughs) Daniel and Trace weren't lovers, Doc. Gods, Trace was probably the most hetero man who ever lived. She crossed her arms. He was my friend, and he was murdered less than six months ago. Didn't it occur to you that that might cause some intense feelings? Grief for a friend can be intense, yes. And we thought we'd accounted for that. But the level of pain you're experiencing is far beyond the norm. It's as if you actually witnessed Mr. Umbara's death up close and personal. But you weren't anywhere near the skyport that day, were you? Danny swallowed and looked away. No. Please, Eli, don't let her read my mind. Fortunately, Dr. Julian appeared to be caught up in her own defense. And you don't have any sort of ESP, so you couldn't have witnessed it that way. She shrugged helplessly. The only thing I can think of is that you're carrying around some kind of repressed guilt for something you did to Mr. Umbara, something you never got a chance to make right. Can you think of anything like that? Anything anything that might be keeping you from having closure about his death? Danny shook her head, not trusting her voice. Don't think, don't think, don't think. Dr. Julian sighed. Well, if anything comes to you, let me know. Or tell a priest about it or something. She touched Danny's hand, her eyes sincerely apologetic. I'm sorry. If we'd known, we would never have included Mr. Umbara in the simulation. Danny glared at her. You know, unexpected grief aside, that's a pretty fucked up thing to do to somebody. What, losing a friend isn't painful enough? You want me to lose a lover, too? It wasn't my idea, Dr. Julian said wearily, rubbing her eyes. Your previous choices in the simulations indicated that you found Mr. Umbara attractive. Your Daniel persona doesn't have the life experiences to provide context for your new bisexuality. So, we needed to give you the opportunity to explore that. Daniel's first sexual encounter with Miss Brower was a useful template for the situation. All right, fine. But why Trace? Why not Brian? The doctor shrugged. Your teenaged mind wasn't attracted to Brian. If we tried to force you into a simulation your mind wouldn't accept, the results could have been disastrous. Danny raised an eyebrow. All right, more disastrous. The whole point of this treatment is to let you be you, whoever you turn out to be. Your rational mind, here and now, says that you should be attracted to Brian because that benefits you in the long run. But teenager hormones don't mix well with that kind of pragmatism. Danny sighed. Don't I know it. Pragmatism has never been my strong suit. Dr. Julian gave her a sympathetic smile. All right, we're, we're done for today. I need to confer with my team and determine the best way to go forward from here. Your teenage sexuality is going to have to be fleshed out, but we'll try to come up with something that isn't traumatic. She grimaced. Or no more traumatic than young love normally is. Danny nodded heavily, getting to her feet. That's all right, Doc. 
I think it's gonna be a while before I'm ready to let you back in my head anyway. She grabbed her purse from a nearby chair and headed for the door. I hope that Fiona's therapy is going better than mine. You're getting close, love, Sasha said. Fiona didn't open her eyes, but she let out an exasperated sigh. (sighs) It doesn't feel like it. No, really. The new visualization approach is working really well. Fiona had to concede that, at least. She had always seen her mind as a vast ocean, churning emotions and memories held back by walls of control. Sasha had suggested a new metaphor might be in order. They now envisioned her memories as a path through a forest, which seemed to be more productive for getting to the roots of her mental block. We've restored your childhood memories up to about age nine. When you came to Westfall, you couldn't have been more than ten. That's a huge improvement over six months ago. Fiona suppressed a grimace. Getting her memories back had been a mixed blessing. Before, she'd been able to imagine whatever past might have suited her. Her parents could be whoever she wanted them to be. She now knew that her mother had been an unlicensed prostitute, a latent teep so weak that she'd been able to service Mondays and Spookies alike. While she was grateful for some of the memories, her mother teaching her to read, or singing her to sleep, or taking her to the park on her rare days off, Others were less welcome, like the repeated memories of hiding in the closet while Mother entertained her clients. Worst of all, nothing that she remembered had been able to help Fiona actually find her mother. Was she dead? Had she given Fiona up to the hive for her own protection? Had she just abandoned her? No, I cannot believe that. She felt Sasha's hand on her shoulder. I don't believe that either. She did everything she could to make a life for you. A mom like that doesn't just cut and run. Fiona looked up at her, a pang of longing clutching at her chest. To remember everything but the most important thing? She shook her head slightly. You're almost there. You're ready to unravel this. I can feel it. Come on, let's give it one more try. Fiona closed her eyes and nodded. Very well. She lay back on the hospital bed and listened as Sasha began to speak in a gentle, measured tone, using a combination of her voice and her powers to lull Fiona into a hypnotic state. Imagine the path of your life, stretching back deep into the woods of your past. Think about the markers you've put down on that path. Can you see the markers? Yes. Good. I want you to go back to the marker for your ninth birthday. Picture it in your mind. Can you see it? Yes. What happened on your ninth birthday? Fiona smiled faintly. We went to the beach. Who went to the beach with you? Sasha asked, though Fiona knew that she knew the answer. My mother. And what are you two doing? Fiona's smile grew a shade wider as the memory blossomed in her mind. We are walking down the beach and singing... Okay, very good. Now, I want you to keep holding on to your mother's hand and walk down the path with her as far as you can. Fiona relaxed and did as Sasha instructed, stepping out of the memory at the beach and continuing down the forest path in her mind. In her mind's eye, her body was still that of the nine-year-old girl from the beach, but she wasn't frightened. Her mother was with her. Soon the underbrush grew thick and the light grew dim. She couldn't see her mother beside her anymore, but she held tightly to the image of mother's hand in her own, the sound of mother's footsteps on the leaves behind her, the scent of mother's perfume in her nose. The path twisted, turned, ran through a snarl of bushes, and finally stopped at a fallen tree. The old oak tree's dead and tangled limbs struck out in all directions, forming a maze of sharp and splintered wood. Fiona looked around and saw fragments of memories all around her, reflected in the leaves scattered by the fallen tree. She tried to go around it, but the brush was dense here and seemed impassable. I'm stuck. I don't know how to get past the tree. Sasha's voice appeared in her mind. Can you jump over the tree? It's too high. Can you move the tree? Fiona looked down at her tiny child body. It's too big to lift. 
then you're going to have to go through it. If you can get past the branches, you'll be able to climb over the tree. Fiona looked up at the tangled mess of branches. I don't know how. At this, she felt a tug on her hand. Her mother's image stepped into view, faint and glowing in the dim light. She looked back at Fiona, her long red hair glistening like rubies from the light inside of her. She smiled encouragingly. Your mother knows the way. Follow her. Hold on to the memory of her. Let it guide you to the other things you've lost. Fiona looked at the tree, doubtful. Her mother squeezed her hand. It's all right, Fiona, her mother said. Her lilting Southmoran accent was as warm and comforting as an old, familiar blanket. Stay close to me, and nothing will harm you. Trust was not something that came easily to Fiona, but as she looked into her mother's dazzling green eyes, she knew that she was safe with her. She followed her into the maze of branches. It was slow and difficult going, and the broken ends of the branches stabbed at her as she passed through. Still, she held on to Mother's hand, following in her footsteps. They came to the trunk of the tree and began to climb. In one spot, it was too far to the next branch for Fiona's little body to reach it, but her mother reached down and lifted her up until she was crouched beside her at the top of the trunk. We're nearly there, Pat. Follow me closely now. I'll catch you if you should fall. Fiona nodded, and she and Mother went down together, using the larger branches as stepping stones to reach the ground. Twice her feet slipped on the moss-covered wood, but Mother grabbed her and held her close. In some distant part of her mind, Fiona knew that this was not her real mother, only a collection of feelings and memories, but she felt those slender arms around her and they made her feel safe. After a moment, they continued their descent. Finding their way out of the thicket of branches seemed to be easier than finding their way in. Before long, Fiona stood with her mother on the far side of the barrier. Looking back from this angle, she could see the stump of the tree, far back in the woods. The top of the stump was smooth and straight, a sharp wedge at a 45-degree angle to the ground. The tree hadn't fallen. Someone had cut it down. Frightened, Fiona turned to continue up the path. Something bad had happened here. She did not want to linger. Her mother did not move. Fiona looked back, puzzled. Mother? Her voice sounded very small and vulnerable, even to her own ears. Aren't you coming? Her mother smiled sadly. Love of my heart. She opened her arms to Fiona. I'm sorry, but this is as far as I go. Tentatively, Fiona came back to her. Her mother wrapped her in her arms again, and Fiona looked up at her questioningly. Mother brushed a lock of frizzy red hair out of Fiona's eyes. Would you know the truth? Would you see what was taken from you? What you have feared to remember for all these years? Fiona swallowed the lump in her throat, then nodded. Her mother gestured at the tree. For a moment, nothing happened. Then, slowly, with a great creaking of wood and the rustling of branches, the tree righted itself. Like a video recording being run backwards, it returned to its place atop the stump, gathering fallen branches and leaves as it came. The sharp slash through the trunk mended itself. Leaves turned from brown to green. Shed strips of bark found their places once more. How are you doing this? I'm not doing this, pet. Mother said, her voice full of pride. You are? In less than a minute, the tree stood intact and healthy once again. In the place where it had fallen, the path of her memories was black and ugly, a rotten, festering patch of earth, overgrown with fungi and infested with wretched, crawling things. Mother went over to stand beside the patch, then turned and beckoned to Fiona. Come and see Fiona. Fiona took a step back. It looks terrible. Her voice still sounded small. The truth is not always beautiful, but as the good book says, it will set you free. Mother held out her hand. Walk with me, pet. One last time. Fiona took a deep breath. Summoning all her courage, she stepped forward and took her mother's hand. 
Together, they stepped through into the memory. We'll be back with more of the Metamorph City podcast right after these messages. He thought he would be the hero who solved the family crisis. He expected to take a simple trip to recover some old debts. He believed he would collect his money without any trouble. He was very mistaken. By the time Ray Davis realizes what he's gotten himself into, money is no longer important to him. Living to see another sunrise is. Acts of Desperation is the debut podcast novel from Tim Dodge. Subscribe today at www.timdodgestories.com. Keep your enemies close and your friends closer. Hello, I'm Dan Pryor. And I'm John Merlin. We're two-thirds of Team You Cannot Be Serious. This summer, we'll be driving 10,000 miles through 21 countries, over five mountain ranges and across three deserts, from London's Hyde Park to the finish line in Mongolia's capital, Ulaanbaatar. All in aid of our three fantastic charities, the Mercy Corps in Mongolia, who help people in some of the most deprived and inhospitable regions to build their own way out of poverty. The Christina Noble Children's Foundation, whose many projects include one to home street children in Mongolia, who would otherwise live under manhole covers for protection from the bitter cold. And the final charity is Shelterbox, whose iconic green survival boxes have been providing disaster relief in both man-made and natural disasters the world over. For more information, or if you'd like to help, visit us at our website, www.yknbs.com. Hello, Metamorphs. This is Robin Hudson, medical examiner of San Francisco in Scott Sigler's sick, sick podcast novel, Nocturnal. Keep that amulet charged and stay off the street after dark. You're listening to Metamorph City. Hey, thanks, Robin. We're back, ladies and gents, and I would strongly recommend that everybody go and check out what the You Cannot Be Serious guys are doing for their charity drive to Mongolia. I am just amazed that anyone would try doing something like that. 10,000 miles, if you can believe it. And I really appreciate what these guys are doing, putting themselves out there like that in the name of their charitable causes. So if you are so inclined, which I hope you are, take some time, take a look at what they're doing, take a look at the charities that they're raising money for, and see if you'd be willing to support them in this, because... How many people do you know who would be willing to drive to Mongolia for the sake of the cause that they believe in? It's pretty incredible. I am in a terrible hurry to get this episode out, and thanks to discovering some nifty new tricks in Cubase, I managed to figure out a way to get it done a little faster than I usually do. It is only 10.30 here in the Pacific Coast time zone. So I'm going to go ahead and get this wrapped up and see if I can get this out to everybody before midnight local time. That would be really nice. So, you know how to get in touch with me. The feedback line is 206-203-0994. That is 206-203-0994. You can also email me at feedback at metamorecity.com. And you can participate in the online discussion forums. We have a fan-driven forum site over at thecursed.org, and we are also on Facebook as Fans of Metamorph City. So please join the conversation. It's always good to hear what other metamorphs are thinking. And keep in mind that we are going to have a feedback show this coming Thursday. So go ahead and get in your feedback as soon as you can so that we can make sure that you're part of the show. Finally, one last item of note. You guys may have noted that Season 2 of Metamore City is starting on September 9th, 2009. That is 9909, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. And you may have done the math and realized that with only six more chapters of making the cut, that we're only going to have enough episodes for another three months. 
So, you may be wondering, Chris, what is going on with Metamore City during the intervening time? Well, the answer is, ladies and gents, that we are going to be having a story contest. You guys are responsible for coming up with these stories to keep us busy during what one listener has referred to as the novel interregnum. If you don't know what that means, it's I-N-T-E-R-R-E-G-N-U-M. Look it up. It's a good word. Anyway, yes, we are having a fanfic story contest. So, here's how it works. Anytime between now and the end of April, you can send me stories written in the world of Metamorph City. I will read them and judge them and decide which ones I like the best. The ones that I like are going to get aired on the podcast during the summer. And the person who writes the best story, in my opinion, is going to win a Metamore City t-shirt from our Metamore City gift shop, which is over at Zazzle.com, Z-A-Z-Z-L-E.com slash C-W Lester. You can go over there and see we have several new designs now, and the winner will get to pick one of those for their very own. So... Send in your fanfic between now and April 30th, 2009. And you can be part of our contest to help fill the summer's allotment of Metamore City goodness. That'll do it for these two weeks. I'm going to get out of here because I've got to pack for a flight tomorrow. And I will talk to you in two more. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Some of the music on this podcast was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Additional music was provided by Michael Masley through magnatune.com. Magnatune.com, they are not evil. Some sound effects were provided by SoundSnap at soundsnap.com, while others were provided by the Freesound Project, located at freesound.iua.upf. Metamore City is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Find out more at creativecommons.org.